Well, this evening we're actually going to take, uh, as we announced on Sunday morning, a break for this week from our study through the book of Exodus. We'll pick back up there next time uh, in chapter 34 where we left off. But uh, as we've kind of been doing here over the last number of months, every six, seven weeks, taking a break uh, from our study uh, through our book that we're in on Wednesday nights and uh, focusing in on some teachings on a series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And thus far we've uh, probably done, I guess, about maybe half a dozen or so uh, messages uh, on this topic, talking about the you know, person uh, of the Holy Spirit, his deity, that he's not a force, uh, but he is God, the Holy Spirit, just like the Father and the Son. And we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit among the church. Uh, and then the last two times we were together uh, discussing this topic, we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And uh, this evening what we want to discuss is actually what we would refer to, again scripturally as we'll see this evening, as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again with these studies uh, we do kind of jump around looking at different portions of scripture. So if you're a note taker, if you can't get there, you can just you know jot them down and I'll certainly I'll read those passages of scripture uh, as we get to them. But why don't we pray and ask the Lord to, to speak to our hearts. Father, we uh, we lift up this evening to you uh, as we continue now in a time in your word. We just want to ask for your help uh, and that you would prepare us spiritually, mentally, uh, even physically, Lord. You know the weakness of our flesh and maybe the tiredness of our body is the end of a long day. Uh, we just ask that you would quicken us by your spirit strengthen us in the inner man with might and power by your spirit that we can be alert and attentive and even give you lord our attention and a mind and a heart and a soul and spirit that would want to expectantly hear what you would want to say to us tonight we ask that you by your spirit's ministry would give us understanding in the word of god and that your same spirit that inspired the word of god would now be our instructor and our interpreter and our teacher we ask you to bless your word and that you'd speak to us by your Spirit's ministry. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, as we think about this subject of the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, my mind sort of uh, transitions back into a time in the Old Testament when in uh, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah was prophesying, there was a man named Zerubbabel who had been given a call by God and a commission uh, to build uh, the temple of the Lord and it seems that in the midst of that uh, there was discouragement and he was kind of at a season when he was feeling very defeated and uh, just you know, downcast and despondent and it just didn't seem the work was moving along the way he would like it to. It seemed that his hands had become weary in the process and uh, if you've ever been in the place before in your life where you've kind of just felt maybe a little spiritually defeated maybe even in your own Christian walk or you you kind of feel a little discouraged and, and just sort of deflated and you're thinking how in the world is this is this possibly going to come to pass whether it's some work of service that you've engaged in for the Lord uh, or whether it's just your daily walk with the Lord and you're just kind of feeling dry and defeated and discouraged and in the midst of that Zechariah is given a word for Zerubbabel and that's in Zechariah chapter 4 Verse 6, where Zechariah is told to say this to this man, Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Again, reminding him, Zerubbabel, the only way in which this will come to pass is not through your human ingenuity, it's not through your efforts, it's not through your energies that you can contrive in your own flesh. It will only come to pass through the supernatural power and enablement of the very Spirit of God himself coming upon your life to enable you. And in some ways it, it reminds me of the very promise that we are ultimately given from Jesus about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, it is one thing to be born again of the Holy Spirit. 
to come to Christ, to accept him in salvation. John chapter 3, Jesus calls that specifically our salvation experience being born again. And it is one thing to be born again of the Holy Spirit. It is, I believe, and it seems the scripture clearly teaches, a distinct and separate thing to then be baptized with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of our conversion, when you experience the day of your salvation, accepting Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, putting your trust in Him as Savior and Lord, at that moment when you are born again by the Holy Spirit, a born again believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that in our prior sessions at length. The scripture teaches that, that when you accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into your life. You're then indwelt by the Spirit. You become a temple of the Spirit of God. He moves inside your life and takes up residence within you. And he begins to work in us and perform the various ministries we talked about, sanctifying us and guiding us and teaching us and leading us into truth and convicting us of sin and these various different ministries of the Spirit working within our lives. Yet we believe that the baptism with the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a subsequent experience in the life of a born-again believer. Uh, that there is a separate and distinct experience with the Spirit of God separate from one's regeneration when we are born again and the Spirit enters inside of us and causes us to come to life spiritually. There is a separate and distinct experience available to receive a dynamic and empowerment from the Spirit of God in our lives. Again, the Bible teaches us in salvation, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, by semantics, and be careful of semantics and prior thoughts you may have because of words. We, we, we can't get caught up in semantics. Uh, listen, the Bible does teach clearly that in salvation we do experience a spiritual baptism. That is, that we are baptized into the life of Christ, that our life is unified with him. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 and Galatians 3, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So that is a baptism spiritually. When we're saved, uh, we are baptized into the life of Christ. Our life becomes one with him and we put on Christ and Christ is then in us and we are in him in relationship. The Bible also teaches there's a spiritual baptism at salvation and conversion in a sense where we're baptized into the body of Christ, the, the church family. And we talked about that as well. The scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, one Christian body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we've all been made to drink into one spirit. That being said, the Bible also declares and teaches that there is a baptism with the Holy Spirit of which we'll see that Jesus himself is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of receiving the power of the Spirit of God operating in our lives in order that we might become effective and useful to the Lord, enabling us and empowering us to live for and serve Him effectively with potency and effectiveness in the way that we live for him and the way that we serve him. And Jesus himself is the one that brings about that baptism with the Spirit in our lives. In Matthew 3.11, we read this. John said, John the Baptist, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he, Jesus, who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, in John's gospel, in chapter one, we read John the Baptist saying this, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remaining upon him, referring to Jesus. And John says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water had said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So as we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, again, we even need to understand we're not asking the Holy Spirit to baptize us. Jesus himself, who is our Savior, the Bible says he is the one who baptizes us with this promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I see in Scripture a teaching that indicates that a believer can have a subsequent experience with the Spirit. In fact, Acts chapter 1 
which we'll look at in a few minutes here together in this passage, Jesus himself talking to the disciples who were born again believers already at that point, he tells them himself, already being born again of the Spirit and indwelt, he tells them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then Jesus says these words, and you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He says that to Christians. He says that to his disciples who already were indwelt with his spirit to wait, he says, and Jesus used the term. So if you want to know the term comes from, it came from Jesus. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, we know in Acts 2, we see the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost upon those first 120 disciples who are praying and waiting and tarrying there in prayer. And Peter seeing this take place, and you remember when the baptism or, or the, the you know, outpouring of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out, the dynamic results that take place, not just in that moment, but you see that the dynamic, powerful results that transform the lives of those disciples and the effectiveness of their ministry afterwards. And when Peter saw that happening, recognizing it, remember, he stood up in Acts 2 and said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, God says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, in our last studies together, as I said, we talked specifically looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In those two sessions, we talked in great detail about what I would consider, and I guess, the subjective work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Tonight, what I want to discuss in our topic on the baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's objective work by the Holy Spirit in and through our lives, that the Spirit flows forth outwardly from our lives to touch others around us. And please understand, that is God's ultimate desire. Not just the, what the Holy Spirit would do in you alone, but ultimately what the Holy Spirit may do through you in His greatest fulfillment of His ministry, accomplishing His works through you. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 7. And as we come to John's Gospel in chapter 7, if you draw your attention to verse 37, here in John 7 we get a prophecy of Jesus himself regarding the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. and Maybe he was thinking of Joel's prophecy and some of the other promises from the Old Testament. John 7, 37, if you turn there, it says this, On the last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John writing adds this commentary. But this he, Jesus, spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So verse 37 refers to this feast, this great day of the feast. This is referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was basically that annual feast. It was one of the mandatory feasts that commemorated the preservation of the God's people in the wilderness and a part of God's preservation throughout the wilderness remember is not only manna came from heaven but also what happened twice water remember came forth from a rock God performed a miracle and in their thirst in the dry and desert area they were in God brought forth water to quench their thirst from a rock so as they're commemorating God's preservation in Israel part of this celebration of the feast of tabernacles is for a seven-day period, the priest would go down and he would fill up pitchers of water and he would bring them back up to the temple area and he would pour out the water from those pitchers on the large pavement stones that were there in a symbolic way, reminding and, and allowing the people to remember how as the water fell upon the pavement stones, how God brought forth water from the rock for them. Now, on the last day, which our text tells us as well, is on the last great day of the feast... The priest 
they called it the silent day, would basically not pour water out on those rocks. And, and, and that exercise that had been done for the seven days prior was not performed. It was a day in which silence was honored. And as it's that day, that last great day of the feast where the water is not poured out on the rocks, it says that Jesus, it's quite interesting, he breaks the silence. Imagine total silence. And Jesus breaks the silence and he cries out in the midst of the silence, yells and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, he says, he who believes in me, drawing attention to himself, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John most likely when he heard that that day when he was present, he probably didn't grasp like everyone else what Jesus meant at that moment. Uh, he probably was just as shocked as everybody else. I can't believe that he just you know, interrupted that silent celebration on the eighth day when everyone is silent and the priest doesn't say anything and no one, and, and he, he probably didn't quite grasp. But later on in hindsight, he's writing his gospel now in hindsight years later, in hindsight, having experienced in Acts chapter 2, together with Peter and everybody else, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, having heard the teachings of Jesus in John 14 through 16, remember on that last night he was with them where Jesus talked about how he was going to send the Holy Spirit, that he was going to send the, the promise of the Father to them. So having heard teachings about the Holy Spirit and then experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit as he was poured out at Pentecost, John, no doubt here in hindsight, he's recording his gospel. He now puts the pieces together and realizes, wait a minute, when Jesus said that that day, he actually was uttering a prophecy about the Holy Spirit. That's why verse 39 says that John in his commentary says, this is what he spoke that day concerning the Holy Spirit. He realized in hindsight, he was prophesying about the work of the Holy Spirit that would take place in our lives experientially. He said, for those of us who would believe in him that we would receive later on, for at that point, John said the spirit hadn't been given because Jesus had not yet died, rose again, and been glorified. So John recognizes this was a prophecy of the spirit, and, and that prophecy contained Jesus declaring, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So the thirst Jesus speaks of here is a spiritual thirst, a thirst that only God can satisfy. It's not a physical thirst, it's a spiritual thirst. Even as David in Psalm 42 said, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. So in the same way we have a physical thirst, the Bible says there's also a spiritual thirst in every human being because we are body, soul, and spirit. And so there is a thirst spiritually that can't be satisfied in your life by physical experience. It can't be satisfied by emotional experiences. It can only be quenched and satisfied by God himself through a spiritual experience. David refers to that. The psalmists speak of these things. And in that day, the living God, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, was right in their midst. And he knew that people had a thirst in their life for God, a thirst spiritually and here is God in the flesh among them. So what's Jesus doing in verse 37? He's basically standing up knowing who he is as God. And he's calling people who have spiritual thirst to come to him. That they may drink of the living waters of the rivers of God's spirit that would emanate from the life of Christ and through the work of the spirit that they might be satisfied. And Jesus indicates that, that he was looking to do, take notice from our text here, that he was looking to do much more than just quench their thirst. He says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's quenching the thirst. But then he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, then out of his heart, Will flow, will flow out, he says, rivers of living water. So Jesus indicates, speaking of the Spirit, that the Spirit was not just to quench their thirst, but that the work of the Spirit ultimately was to overflow their cups. It wasn't just to quench their thirst. It was also to then overflow their cups. It was going to happen as the Holy Spirit worked through their lives as Jesus speaks of the Spirit like water quenching thirst and then overflowing its banks like a river 
during flood time. Notice he says there in verse 38, referring to the spirit out of his heart. And again, what is the heart? It's the innermost part of our being. The heart speaks of the inner part of our life where the spirit of God indwells you and I. And he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Speaking of the spirit flowing out like rivers of living water, the water of God's spirit. And the Holy Spirit, notice, is not desiring, please take notice of this as a Christian tonight, he's not desiring just to stay bottled up in your life and just contained within doing his work subjectively in you and that alone. Instead, the Holy Spirit, God's desire for him is that he would proceed outwardly from your life. The Greek here, when you look at the terminology, as it refers to flowing out like a, a, a tarn of living water, a river of living water, it literally, the language indicates a, a, a river at flood stage when it's overflowing its banks. When there is such a surge of water that it can't be contained in its natural banks, so it overflows its banks and floods other areas outside of itself in its surroundings, overflowing the banks to reach and affect other areas. And often we as Christians, we speak a great deal about what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. Man, the, the Spirit of God's been speaking to me about this, or the Holy Spirit's been convicting me about this, or the Holy Spirit's, you know, he's, he's bringing change in my life in this area. But we need to remember God's ultimate desire is not that we would just be a vessel containing the Holy Spirit, but that ultimately we would be a channel whereby the Spirit of God may flow through our lives, listen, to touch the needy world around us, to satisfy a thirsty, needy world that is like a dry and weary land that knows no water, and that the Spirit of God may work in your life in such a way that ultimately He would overflow the banks of your life and touch the world around you where it's parched and dry and needy. And if the only work of the Spirit in our life is subjective, and tonight you do not sense or see the Spirit of God overflowing the banks of your life and touching the lives of other people around you of need, then let me just say this. I believe maybe God has something more for you in regards to your relationship with His Spirit. And can I pose the thought, why would you stop short as a Christian? I certainly want everything that God has for me. I want everything. Everything that the Lord's made available to me, I want to experience it to the fullest. And that happens through the third of what Jesus indicates in the Bible of three relationships we can have with the Spirit. We've looked already at two of those relationships. Remember in John 14, Jesus said these words regarding the Spirit. Jesus said this. Regarding the Spirit, he said, He dwells with you. And Jesus said, he will be in you. Now that describes two experiences we can have with the Spirit. And Jesus uses different Greek prepositions. He dwells with you. That's the Greek word para, which means alongside of. It's where we make our terms you know, parallel. And, and, and the idea there is that the Spirit of God is with us. He can be alongside of us. That's one experience with the Holy Spirit. And typically, that's our experience with the Holy Spirit prior to salvation. Before I was a Christian, the Holy Spirit was with me in my life. He was alongside of me. He wasn't a part of my life, but he was wooing me to Christ. He was, he was drawing me to him. He was making me realize that I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus Christ. And, and he was the one alongside of me, like, like a, a, a tutor pointing me to Christ and teaching me of my need of salvation. And then when I accepted Jesus Christ, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will also be in you. It's E-N in the Greek. It's our English word, I-N. The idea is very clear. It refers to the Holy Spirit then ultimately entering inside of us. That happens at salvation. That when you choose to trust in Christ as Savior, then the Holy Spirit goes from being with you, convicting you and drawing you to Christ, then he enters inside of you. And he indwells you and he becomes a part of of your innermost being. In fact, in John chapter 20, we see Jesus appearing after he's raised back from the dead. So on the other side of the crucifixion and after his resurrection, Jesus shows up on one of those resurrection appearances and he appears in the midst of the disciples and listen to what John 20 tells us. This is John 20, verse 19 to 22. 
It says that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood in the midst and he said to them, peace be with you. So we see on those days between his resurrection and his ascension in the Gospels, Jesus would just keep showing up. He would just appear in a room, lock doors. He would just step out of the eternal dimension and he would just show up and appear in the room. This is one of those occasions, a post-resurrection appearance. He shows up in the room. He says, peace be with you. And then it says, when he showed them his hands and his side, his wounds, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said, Peace to you, listen what Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I am not a theologian, but I'm simple enough to believe that if Jesus Christ says to you, receive the Holy Spirit and he breathes on you, you probably receive the Holy Spirit. Would, would you agree with that? That, that? To me, that's not a real challenging theological concept. And uh, to me, if Jesus Christ breathes on you as his follower already and, and, and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, to me, at that point, Peter, James, John, they received the Holy Spirit at that moment. They were indwelt. What we would call salvation experience, like how when we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, they were indwelt. The Spirit entered inside of them at that moment. Now, Jesus uses a third Greek preposition to refer to an experience we can have with the Holy Spirit. With us, in us. But if you turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, just back a little bit to the left, we see Jesus use a third Greek term, a term, a preposition referring to an experience we can have with the Spirit. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 46 through 49. Jesus speaking, again, this is prior to his ascension back up into heaven to the right hand of the Father. We're on the other side of his resurrection before he ascends back to heaven. And in verse 46, Jesus says, gather with the disciples, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. But then he says, verse 49, after commissioning them to go out and preach, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you circle that word there upon i send the promise of my father upon you but tarry in the city of jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high so here that term upon jesus uses a term it's epi in the greek a third greek preposition he uses in regards to an experience or relationship with the holy spirit here jesus uses the term that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Now, Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, they're sort of overlapping passages where Jesus is talking to the disciples before he ascends back into heaven. And here he says, before you go out and begin to serve and preach the gospel to all nations, he says, wait, tarry in Jerusalem, go, but then he says, but wait first, and wait until the Holy Spirit, he says, comes upon you the term means to come over uh, to be on top of or literally to fill to overflowing uh, the picture the idea if you can visualize in your mind it's a shame i you know didn't bring something like this up here but if you can picture a, a pitcher of water here on the pulpit and a glass of water and let's say here's the pitcher of water and the empty glass of water and the water is is the holy spirit and initially, if the glass is empty and the pitcher of water is sitting here, you could say that that water is with the glass. It's next to it. It's alongside of it. Then I can take the water and I can start to pour it in the glass. And I can fill it all the way up to the very top. Now that water is in the glass. But if I keep pouring a little bit more once it's filled, then what's going to happen? As I keep pouring it on top, it's going to overflow and ultimately it's going to flow out over top of it. That's the idea of our word here, a P in the Greek, to be upon. It means to come on top of or to fill to overflowing. Jesus is saying, wait until the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, until he overflows your life, comes upon your life 
in power as you're endued with power from on high. Now go over with me to Acts chapter 1. And again, we see sort of uh, Jesus discussing the same thing, whether it was a part of the same conversation or another day. We, we can't be dogmatic. But again, prior, right before his ascension, we see Jesus speaking of the same thing using this same terminology. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Jesus being assembled together with them, commanded them, notice, the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, Luke tells us, in which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, not many days from now. So he says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he says, that's something that's still to come a few days from now. So he sets them in a motion of, look, be waiting, you know, be patient. Then, of course, they go in the upper room and they're praying and they're tearing until Pentecost. So he says, there's something coming yet still, not many days from now. And he calls it being baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they heard this, they came together and said, Lord, verse 6, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father's put in his own authority. He comes back to his main point, verse 8, but... This is what's important right now in your life, he says. The important thing is this, regarding the baptism of the Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, we see here that same term, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Same preposition there in the Greek Jesus uses, and Jesus uses the term to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say this before we move on. I don't care what you call it. You know, I know people come from... Well, I don't like that term, that's... My concern is not what you call it. My concern is, are you experiencing it? It's not an issue of semantics or terminology or is it the second blessing or a filling or the gift of God. Or The bigger issue is, are you experiencing this dynamic, this power, this dunamis that Jesus says is available when one experiences the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There is a supernatural power available from Jesus Christ to live effectively and powerfully for him as his witness, to live faithfully for him, to overcome sin, to be useful and faithful and fruitful in our service. And we see that experience Jesus speaks of here illustrated multiple times throughout the book of Acts. Uh, turn with me just to Acts chapter 8. We'll look at just one of them here. Obviously, we don't have time to look at everyone, but we see it repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 gives us one very clear uh, picture of this, I believe. Acts chapter 8 is a record of the ministry of Philip taking the gospel to Samaria. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to the Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world. It's kind of rippling out as they would go out to be evangelists and spread the gospel ultimately globally as they took the message of salvation around the world. And the gospel has now spread in Acts chapter 8 out to Samaria. And there's this incredible ministry happening in Samaria where people are getting saved, miracles are taking place. Acts chapter 8 verse 12, notice it says, as Philip is preaching the kingdom of God, it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were getting baptized. So it pictures People getting saved, a revival, an, an awakening. People are coming to Christ. They're hearing the things of the kingdom of God about the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And verse 12 says that people believed, and it also says they were being baptized. Now, I don't think you would baptize someone. I don't think Philip would baptize someone if they weren't genuinely born again. What would be the purpose? They would baptize people when they were born again and made a confession and experienced salvation. Well, verse 13 says, Simon, who was a sorcerer, kind of a, a magic arts person in that day, he also believed when he was baptized 
and continue with Philip. And he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem, back in where the church had first began, heard that Samaria had now received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, two of their primary leaders, to them, who when they came down to Samaria, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he, the Holy Spirit, notice the person of the Spirit, he, here's, notice our text, he had fallen upon, there's our term again, E-P-I in the Greek, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid hands on them and then they received the Holy Spirit. So here's this revival breaking out. People are getting saved. Miracles are happening. There's a real work of God. Peter and John hear about it. They go to see this new work that's taking place in Samaria to celebrate and to no doubt be an encouragement as they show up. Peter and John, who had experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit there in the church in Jerusalem and understood these things, they sensed, hey, these people are converts, but it seems that there's a dynamic missing from their life still. They're believers in Christ. There's a work of God happening here, but it seems there's something still missing. So it tells us that sensing that, that they realized, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them that they hadn't experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit, so they probably explained it and then offered to pray for them, and they then, as they lay hands on and pray for them, it says, then receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, the idea here is now we have what Jesus taught about in John chapter or Acts chapter 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now we just don't see it being taught about. We see it actually starting to take place in the church. Here in Acts chapter 8, we have an example where it's not just being taught, but it's actually taking place. People are experiencing this baptism of the Holy Spirit where he was coming upon their lives in power as Peter and John went and explained and no doubt prayed and asked for the people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we see this happening again, the Spirit coming upon people's lives throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 verse 31 says when they prayed the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. In chapter 19 verses 5 and 6 it says when they heard this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul laid hands on them the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So we see this repeatedly happening throughout the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit coming upon believers who were already indwelt with the Spirit, but coming upon their lives in power to enable them, to give them a supernatural dynamic to walk out their Christian life and to serve the Lord effectively and more usefully than what they were prior to that time. In fact, I would remind you, Jesus, even in his own public ministry, in his public ministry, Jesus enters into his public ministry after he's baptized in water. Remember, it says the Spirit comes and, and rests upon him. And then Jesus, speaking of his own public ministry, Jesus said this. Listen to what he declared. He says, Luke 4.18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. There's our term again. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now listen, Jesus was the Son of God, was he not? He was a child of God. He was God's only begotten Son. And yet, we see that the Bible teaches that Jesus' ministry service was performed when? After the Spirit of the Lord came upon his life. Jesus himself speaks of how it was after the Spirit was upon him that he then, he says, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, I'm now anointed to preach the gospel and to help heal brokenhearted people and to minister in the ways that I'm ministering as a result of the Spirit of the Lord being upon my life, empowering Jesus even amidst this humanity for his ministry. Now, I look at that and think, if that was the case with Jesus, can and should we be willing to settle for anything less? If the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus, 
for his service and his ministry, uh, we need the Spirit of the Lord to be upon us to anoint us and to empower us. And, and since I'm a believer and I know I have the Holy Spirit living in me and you're a Christian if you are this evening and you know the Spirit of God already lives within you, maybe you would ask, well then what's the big deal with this? If the Spirit lives within me and I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, then what's the purpose? If the Holy Spirit already is in me, What's the purpose or the need for this baptism of the Spirit? How do I know even if this has happened in my life? How can I understand that? And, or how do I know if I should still ask for it? Well, let me take the remainder of our time together to kind of discuss maybe some of the major, what you might say, purposes or identifying marks or evidences of how we can know that the Holy Spirit has come upon our life. Or why we should desire the Holy Spirit to come upon our life that we might experience this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I use the word purposely, major purposes or clearest evidences, is because I think many people sadly have been misled in regards to this. There are whole circles of the church where people are, I think in many ways, misled. Uh, I'll go as far as to say criticized condemned uh, as to what determines if they're experiencing the fullness of the Spirit in their life, if they've really been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there are circles of the church, some will say that when this happens and when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, if you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then you absolutely, no question, you absolutely must be able to speak in tongues which is one of the spiritual gifts and it is one of the evidences that we see in the book of Acts. But when I studied the Bible as a whole, indeed, though that is one of the evidences that is manifested when people were baptized or filled with the Spirit or when the Spirit came upon them, I don't discredit that. I do not see that happening in the Scriptures every time someone was filled or baptized or the Holy Spirit came upon their lives. And to quantify... That speaking in tongues alone is the main emphasis is to miss the whole point. It's to miss the whole point. It's a tragedy that it becomes such a hyper-emphasized thing. Uh, let's look together for a few minutes at the areas that Scripture clearly affirms are evidences and reasons and purposes that we would want to experience the baptism of the Spirit in our lives. For that, just go back with me to where we already were in Acts chapter 1, back to that 8th verse that Jesus spoke about because I'd much rather know what Jesus says than what just a, a church traditionally says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'd rather take the word of Jesus and what he says. And, and Jesus says, look, do you want to know a purpose that you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do you want to know what is a clear evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit has come upon your life as a Christian? He explains it in verse 8. He says regarding this, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in a sense, we might fairly say that a clear area or major purpose or evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or a reason we should desire the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that we might be supernaturally empowered to be solid, strong witnesses for Jesus Christ in the world in which we live, to serve Jesus effectively, to live for Jesus faithfully among the unsaved world that we might spread the gospel of Christ and minister to people in the love of Christ. In Luke 24 and in Matthew 28, we have Jesus talking about what we often call what? The Great Commission. Right Where Jesus, right before he ascends back into heaven, he gathers the disciples together and he says what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples, he says, of all nations, teaching them to observe the things I taught to you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So here, again, he's commissioning these 12 disciples to spread the gospel message throughout the whole known world and if we know anything about the 12 men hearing this who traveled around with Jesus, they were a bunch of, what? Nobodies. 
They were fishermen and zealots. You know, we read the gospel accounts and we feel encouraged because we see Peter bumbling and stumbling and putting his foot in his mouth and one minute he's walking on the water and next minute he's, you know, swallowing water and, and we see James and John when a city doesn't respond to the gospel, they're saying, hey Lord, you want to just nuke the city? I mean, and we see, we see them making all these mistakes and their frailty and the humanity of their flesh and here's the whole thing and Jesus is saying, I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm turning it all over to you, to you twelve. And I can't help but think if they were anything but honest with themselves, they're looking at each other going, is he kidding? He's going to trust us to take this thing and to spread it all over the planet? I mean, from a human standpoint, let's be very honest, that was an impossibility. What he was commissioning them to do was a complete impossibility, but yet Jesus never commands us to do something that he won't equip us and empower us to do as well. So he gives them an impossible command, but then he promises the capacity by saying to them, you wait. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be witnesses effectively in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost parts of the world. Again, that word receive power in the Greek, it's the term dunamis where we get our English word dynamite explosive power or we might say dynamic power this is what jesus was referring to a dynamic supernatural power from on high that would come upon them as a result of receiving the holy spirit coming upon their life that they would also subsequently receive a dynamic power from heaven acts 433 says with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the lord jesus think of the of the disciples in the book of Acts compared to what they were like in the Gospels. In the Gospels, remember, what were they doing? When Jesus first died on the cross, they were terrified, remember? They were hiding in upper rooms. They had the doors locked. They were fearful for their lives. They were a bunch of cowards right after Jesus died. But after Pentecost and after the Holy Spirit came upon their lives and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized with the Spirit, these same men... They were like bold as roaring, raging lions. Something happened in them. They were changed and transformed where there was now this willingness. They were risking their lives to be bold witnesses for Jesus, testifying in word and deed with a new dynamic and a power and a supernatural strength from on high that was so evident that it transformed their lives. And tonight, by way of application, great thing to ask yourself. Do you need... Do you sense a desire for more boldness in your witness for Jesus? In the way that you live your life? Do, do, do you sense a cowardliness of your life in regards to your Christianity? That in your job or in your school or around your friends or your family that, that, that there's just quite a bit of intimidation and cowardice and, and you're afraid to live out your faith. You're afraid to admit that you represent Jesus and you're not ashamed of that. And you sense a desire for a greater boldness in your words and your actions. Well, Jesus would say to you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be a witness for me. It's as simple, he says, as receiving the power that I'll supply that will enable you to have boldness that you don't have naturally and I don't have naturally. Hey, tonight, by way of application, do you feel, do you realize that there is a, maybe a lack of power in your Christian life? Maybe you realize a lack of power of living for Jesus faithfully. And you're saying, man, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I know that I'm saved. I, I know I accepted Jesus. I know I prayed a prayer to receive Christ. And I know His Holy Spirit lives in me because you know, when I'm blowing it, He's convicting me. And, and so you know, it's not an issue of are you saved or not. You know you're saved. But maybe though you know you're saved, you're thinking, but man, I just, you know, I mean, I'm on, I'm off. I'm constantly struggling with sin in this area and I can't get victory and, and I just feel so impotent and powerless to live faithfully for the Lord. Listen, Jesus would say to you tonight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to live faithfully for Jesus. Power to overcome sin. Power to serve the Lord effectively 
where you have a dynamic impact in people's lives by how you live and how you serve and what you say and the things God uses you to do. Well, the question becomes then how does that dynamic power sort of, you know, how does it manifest itself? How would it reveal itself in our lives? Does that mean I'm going to get weird all of a sudden? You know, just because I got, I got the power, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm a power, so I'm going to be doing some miracles. And how, what does it look like in our lives? When the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, how does that flow out? How does that manifest or evidence itself? Well, I would say this. It manifests itself in the flowing forth of God's love from your life in a very powerful way. Because Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy and Peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. See, in the preceding verses, he talks about the works of the flesh and all the selfishness that comes from our flesh and, and all of the you know destructive things that come from our flesh. But then he mentions, but the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit's at work in your life powerfully, he says the fruit of the Spirit will be love. In other words... How do you know when you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit or what's going to happen if you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit absolutely and definitely? Well, I'll tell you one thing that's absolutely going to happen. You're going to find there's going to be an unusual and an unnatural love in your heart that was never there before. An unnatural and an unusual for love for the Lord in a way like it's never been there before. A greater and a deeper love for people that you never could have mustered up on your own. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that love, because it's the love of God in your heart, manifests itself in the following descriptive terms that we just read. The fruit, notice, singular, the fruit of the Spirit, singular, is love. But it's a love that produces a renewed joy. It's a love that causes you to have a peace in your heart where you weren't maybe peaceful before. It's a love that allows you to be more long-suffering and patient with people in a way that you never were able to be patient with people before and to tolerate guff and to not have to always get back or say what you need to say or retaliate, but just to, to be able to exercise patience. It's a love that allows you to exercise kindness where maybe you're not naturally kind to people in situations. It's a love that empowers you to be able to, it says, have faithfulness in your life. Oh, I wish I was more faithful to the Lord. Well, listen, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon your life, the fruit of that Spirit will be love and it will be a, such a love for the Lord that you'll find a renewed faithfulness to live faithfully to the Lord because you love Him and you love people and you care about more than yourself now. It'll be a powerful love that causes you to be more gentle and he says also it's a love that produces self-control. Self-control. Oh, I want the power of the Holy... Yeah, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to have self-control, to refrain from sin, to withhold from doing things that I know that are wrong. And I think the most genuine demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God taking place in our life is that flowing forth like rivers of living water of the love of God just ushering out of our life as it's flooding our soul as the power and the fruit of God's Spirit is love within us. And therefore, it affects the world around us. It's the love of God that flows out of our lives to make us serve effectively and to do those things. And it touches other people. If you can illustrate in your mind, when somebody's water baptized... You know, we have a water baptism and you, you know, see somebody get water baptized and maybe it's your friend or somebody you're close to or family member and then they come back out of the water and what do people do? Typically they go over and they hug them. Well, when you hug somebody that's just been water baptized, what happens to you? You get wet, right? Because you come into contact with them, they've been immersed and baptized in the water and as a result, when you come into contact with them after they've been immersed and baptized in the water, you get wet as a result of the contact with them. Well, when somebody's been baptized with the Holy Spirit and they come into contact with other people, they affect people. They affect people. 
the love of God, the power of God, the potency of their words or their servant's heart or their attitudes or their actions or their treatment, it affects people. People are affected as they come into contact with someone who's been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this can only happen as you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, not by might or by power, but by my spirit. Listen, maybe you sense a lack of love in your heart and you say, man, I just, I wish I did love the Lord more. I wish, I wish I did have greater love for people. I understand that. I, I am constantly confronted with the selfishness of my own heart. And I have found again and again, I can't muster up love in my heart. It just doesn't come. Hate, easy. Anger, easy. Frustration, criticism, judgment. I want to strangle you, easy. I'm good at that stuff. I can't muster up love for people. It's supernatural. It has to come by the Spirit of God in my life. And Lord, you have got, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to shed abroad your love into my heart. You've got to pour it into my heart that it would flow out of my heart like rivers of living water. Tonight, listen, I know that most of you here in this room, you know Jesus, you're indwelt with the Spirit. He's living in you, he's working in you. But can I ask you to ponder something? Can you say of your relationship with the Holy Spirit that it is like rivers of living water at flood stage, overflowing the banks of your life. Is that your experience with the Holy Spirit? Is your experience with the Holy Spirit whereby like a river overflowing its banks, he's gushing forth from your life and affecting powerfully the world around you? Tonight, do you sense a need in your life for greater boldness in your witness for Christ? Tonight, as you're here, do, do you desire, do you need supernatural power to live for Jesus more faithfully, to overcome sin in your life, to represent Jesus in a better way than you have been, to be an effective follower or to be a more useful servant in the ministry and the labors and things that you do for the Lord? Tonight, do you desire more of God's love spilling forth from you onto others well, all I would say is simply this. Maybe the Lord has something more for you. Maybe he has something more for you. Why would you not want it? Why would you not want to receive it? If Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him, why should we be intimidated or afraid of having the Spirit of the Lord come upon us? Jesus wasn't weird. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Nothing strange happened. Wonderful things happen, would you agree, when the Spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus? You know, I love the description in First Samuel chapter 10 regarding the Spirit coming upon a person's life. It says this, listen to what this declares. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be turned into another man. Wow. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be turned into another man. Man. Hey, Jesus promised the gift of his Father, endowment from on high, that we could be baptized and that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And he said, And then you shall be witnesses. When you receive, he says, then you shall be. And let me close with this thought this evening. Perhaps you say, Well, you know, how does one then, how does one receive? and experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit if we don't sense it in our life. Well, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus makes a statement which I want to leave in your thought banks tonight is you're open to responding to what the Lord has for your life. If you want to turn there with me quickly, you can. Luke chapter 11, we'll, we'll end here this evening. Luke 11 verse 9, Jesus again, who is the one, who encourages us to be baptized with the Spirit, Luke eleven nine he says this, So I ask, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a, of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him?
Now take note here. The answer to the question, Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay, Jesus, how do I receive that? Well, I think he answers the question here. Ask. Ask and you shall receive. Ask, Jesus says. The way to receive is to ask. It's a gift, the Bible tells us, by believing the promise of God's Word. Can I ask you a question? How did you get saved initially? You asked, you believed, and you received, right? You believed the promise of God's Word, the gift of God is eternal. You believed the promise of God's Word, and you asked by faith, and you received by faith and God honored the promise and when you accepted and asked Jesus Christ to save you that's when the Holy Spirit came inside of you why would God change the rules he doesn't change so God says do you want to receive the baptism do you want to receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon your life he says ask believe and ask and receive that it's a free gift. It's something to be received. And here Jesus, again, I believe is speaking of something that we're talking about because when we got saved, we asked for Jesus. We didn't ask for the Holy Spirit to get saved. We asked for Jesus. Here he's talking about how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Lord, I know that I'm a Christian. I know Jesus lives within me and that your spirit dwells within me. But Lord, I want your spirit to come upon me. I want to be filled with your spirit. I want to experience the fullness of God. And I ask that your spirit come upon my life. The key is that we're told to ask. It's really simple. But it's something that it's a response that we choose to make.